We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron and Abe. It's a scary movie. He's not here this week. But Out Now is a film podcast where Abe and I discuss new movies weekly. However, every now and then we'll have these special bonus episodes, whether it's one of our fun commentary tracks or something completely different. And this is one of our fun bonus commentary tracks for August 2021. This month, we are talking Candyman, the 1992 modern horror classic uh, in honor of the upcoming reboot slash sequel to Candyman from director Nita Costa and producer Jordan Peele. And joining me to discuss this film we have from Wise to Blue and hosted the Brandon Peters show, it's always him. It was always him. It's Brandon Peters. Yeah, the Candyman can. Hello. Good to be here. Also joining us from the Cave of Fatherhood, he's the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. It's Yancey Burns. Hey guys, how's it going? Thanks for having me back. And joining us from Forbes, come with him and be immortal. It's Scott Mendelson. Hi. I had a funny thought to that, but completely went by. Bye-bye. <laughs> so I'm just going to say thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Well, glad, to, glad to have all you guys here. We have plenty to talk about with the Candyman. Uh, not to be confused with Sammy Davis Jr. We are talking, of course, Tony Todd. There's, there's two black Candymen. This is the one we're going with this time around. And uh, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the movie The Candyman. I don't know why I'm adding an article to it. It's just Candyman. Not the Jewish it's, one. It's cleaner. Yeah, exactly. Um, the Candyman. That's when they get to like part four and they want to kind of re, re, re-get it all together. <laughs> to, to clarify, at least three of us have the unrated version, which is available on Screen Factory Blu-ray. I'm not sure what Scott's version has, but it is available on Peacock streaming as well. Um, but they're both the same length, so there shouldn't be too much of a challenge. But regardless, we're going to play that movie with it muted so the four of us can talk all about it. So if you plan to uh, watch the movie as well as listen to us. We're going to count that from three. And on the sound of go, you can press play. We're about 10 seconds in and you can listen along and watch the movie and, and be, be scared, but also informed at the same time. That's what people say. Right. And if you're not, if you're just watching, if you're just listening on your, uh, your varying various podcast device, uh, you're good. You just uh, keep listening. And the, the gold is about to arrive. Uh, so yeah, I think we're good to go. You guys ready? I'm ready. Yep. All right. Three, two, one Candyman. Candyman. All right. So let's launch how we usually do these things. When did you guys first see Candyman? Arrived in 1992. Scott Mendelson, when did you first see Candyman? I did not see it in theaters initially, although I was consistently aware of what it was and the strong reviews and the huzzas for its you know social commentary, which wasn't necessarily a given for a mainstream horror film at that time. Or at least it wasn't something that was going to automatically be noticed and appreciated by mainstream critics. That is a virtue. Uh, I saw it on video, uncut. It was not something I saw the first time in syndication. About 94. Yeah, watched it at home at 94. Liked it a lot. Yancy, how about you? When did you first see Candyman? I saw this in the theater. I'm sure because I think Siskel and Ebert probably liked it yeah they were fans yeah as i as i recall yeah i saw this probably the first weekend considering my habits at the time movie wise were you were, did you were you a fan of candy man when you watched it i i think this movie works better in concept and execution watching it again recently i had the same reaction i did when i saw it as a, as a young punk and i probably seen it twice in between i think that it I think that it's stranded between two kinds of movies and I think that it's a little bit weaker for that, but I understand why it's, as you say, a modern classic because 
because horror movies themselves are, are sort of starved for this kind of powerful imagery. So even if I don't think this effect is particularly effective overall as a movie, it, it, it belongs in the horror lexicon because horror is sort of such a confused genre by 92 for me. Before we get to Brandon and myself, I will note that as we're watching this opening credit sequence here, we have wonder, a wonderful score by Philip Glass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, as I understand it, he was not aware of the kind of movie he was scoring when he was putting this together. I think he had like a general thought, but I, as mm-hmm. I've read it, he didn't really understand that this was you know, a full-on horror movie, um, which I find to be fascinating. Interesting. But, but there is a level of class that comes with how this score comes together because it's it's a it it we're going to talk about this more but it adds to kind of the the adult nature of this film you know it's not you know a pop song it's not something that's you know trying to jar you it's more of this elegant piano music that's coming out of the thing um but we'll get back to that in a second a lot of b's right here but brandon (laughs) b is for brandon what uh where did you first see candy uh vhs uh when it came so it would have been 92 or 93 whenever it came out on vhs I rented it, uh, watched it alone. It scared the living hell out of me. Like, I did not want to go in a bathroom at night for a long time. <laughs> like, I, yeah, it was, I felt uneasy around mirrors. Like, it, it really affected me. I was probably, I was like 10 years old when I saw this. I, there was no, nothing like the very adult nature of it kind of it probably enhanced the horror for me. Um, it's definitely, for me, probably the best horror film between Silence of the Lambs and Scream in that time. And it's only become stronger for me Like since uh, I think it's the best thing uh, cinematically with Clive Barker's name on it um, around. Uh, and I'm a, I, I am a fan of him, but uh, this one really just effective and... It was like a, I mean, it's a slasher film, but has a lot more to offer. Or it takes it in a interesting direction, uh, built off like the kind of uh, avenues Freddy Krueger introduced, but taking it into a next level. But nobody ever piggybacked off this. They would go back to traditional stuff once Scream came around. But um, really, yeah, really, really gigantic fan of this film. Real quick, again, a lot of character actors in the movie. We'll talk about plenty of them. But right now we have Ted Raimi, who Ted is still, Raimi. still young. At, Ted Raimi. Still, yeah, still young enough to play a, a leather bound, leather jacket bound man <laughs> and not like the dweeb type character he generally seems to play from, from Biker like, youth. after this. Biker youth. <laughs> yeah. Um, I saw this. I'm convinced I saw this movie during during the 90s at some point on like home video or whatnot but i can't specifically remember like that time but i'm but i do have like a strong image of like what Candyman was and i don't think it was just like through osmosis i think i like legit saw it i just can't really mm-hmm. distinctly remember it um and then it was just not like the easiest thing to find like for a long time as far as like watching this movie and it's obviously before like stream and even streaming it wasn't streaming at all uh, forever so like i finally like really watched it for the first time when this scream factor blu-ray came out and uh, i mean i was very satisfied with what i got uh there's so much i mean again i know i've been familiar enough with because there's so much stuff that i recognize from watching it but even then I, like I, yeah see i understand where you're coming from i i do think it's a tricky balance 
And I just, I guess I just find it a little more successful than you do, but I, I do think it, it has a lot to say about, you know, the specific time that it's in while also, you know, catering to a certain kind of crowd uh, with the advantage, I think, of just having adult characters that have like, you know, real lives and conversations about things or whatnot. So I, I think it's a really strong entry as far, especially in 90s horror, which we've talked about before, Brandon, as far as. Yeah, this you know, was a rough, this was a bright spot during a very rough period for horror. Like people were mm-hmm. even like talking about like, is horror dead? Like is, is horror's future like straight to video? Um because it was this odd nothingness. There was good. There were good movies that came out during this time. Um, but. Well, for me, this is certainly the first film that I think of when I think of the brief Osansa Lambs run of "quote unquote" adult prestigious horror pictures. Yeah, which we talk and about a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm a, yeah. Not to be a broken record, but you know, this Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, Wolf, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, yeah. um, New Nightmare to a certain extent, um, Vampire yeah, in Brooklyn. Of but this course. was the only one that was, I mean, it was based off a novella, but it was something fresh and new. Those it was, were it was new retreads of, yeah. Even uh, then you got like, well, I guess it's before Silas, but Misery, right? is 90. Right. Yeah. Oh, thinner. I guess there's a few like Stephen King. Yeah, yeah. I think Stephen King's probably supplying this, a few but horror films. Stephen but... King was going, starting to trend down <laughs> yeah, this yeah. time too. We had a lot of good Stephen King movies from the late 70s, 80s, and then yeah. You kind of got, the the this... miniseries was a big deal on TV for Stephen yeah, King. Yeah, in the it, 90s, got, miniseries yeah. where he was kicking ass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Obviously, so obviously The up. Shining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was growing up, yeah, I, mean, I say you know, before I was like 10 or 11, you know, the extent that I paid attention to this stuff in the critical consensus, Stephen King horror movies were often considered the bottom of the barrel in terms of quality. It wasn't that his books were bad, but the movies that were coming out of I mean, between, say, The Shining and Misery, let's say, were not good. <laughs> well, they start putting them out like, and that's going to happen. It always was. You're right, Scott, but I find that they actually tend to be towards the better, the better horror movies of their era just because they're at least fueled by what is usually a pretty good idea from Stephen King. Yes. Well, I them, like, I mean, like you know, I think there's a little bit of punishment, punishment to or punishing those movies for being adaptations of novels that they feel like are successful in in, in the literature sort of field. Yeah. I think those movies actually hold up. A Silver Bullet, I, I think, is like. Oh yes, I like Silver Bullet. I mean, it, it, I, I think is... we're talking right here. We're talking about like the sometimes they come back type era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The definitely TV movie era. Yeah, yeah. All right. there's, there's also the fact that some of them are just they're just bad. I mean, <laughs> regardless of like how they match up to the book, some of them just don't translate well. I can't. I don't know how many Xander Berkeley movies we've done. I know we've done T two, obviously, but and he's I, been I, on the show too. So he, <laughs> <laughs> he's friend of the show Xander Berkeley. Let me tell you. <laughs> so, but he is, you know, th- this is what a year after T two, so it's still like young mm-hmm. Xander Berkeley. Yeah, Again, this this is a character actor rich movie. I mean, Virginia Madsen's character oh, yeah. actor for, right. the, for that matter. Hot off of a uh, Highlander two, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then obviously Tony Todd will come in. Cassie Lemons, of course. Our we, we did a Silence of the Lambs commentary just a few months ago, and our of course our our right. our legendary Cannibal Lecter series. Um, Cassie Lemons played this part in Hard Target, Silence of the Lambs, and this movie. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same <laughs> role. Yeah. The, the the black best friend that's quite knowledgeable. And yeah. may may or may not die, and then she becomes a successful director who people should see her movies more, but don't anyway. Mm-hmm. It's sad. Uh, <laughs> but... This is a pretty meaty role for Virginia Madsen. I don't know whether she ever yeah. got a big role. She usually was cast just for being a beautiful blonde woman, but she got right. 
some real stuff in this movie. This yeah, is it's more than best role till sideways, honestly. Like, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's funny. And because it's not like she's had a bad career since Sideways, but Sideways is a movie where I'm like, this movie, that movie ruined Virginia Madsen because she gets bigger roles and they're just not as good. Because it's like wife to Harrison Ford, oh, yeah, she gets, wife to Jim Carrey, she gets or lousier roles in bigger movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where like she'd come in as a supporting player that knocks out a few scenes, like in, like the Rainmaker. She'll come in for like one scene of the yeah. Rain, and it's great. But like sideways, it's like now you're an Oscar nominated actress, so here's the wife role in these various movies. Yeah. The astronaut farmer is another one. It's just like supportive wife character and all these things. At so least like TV, she can get like, cut loose a little bit. Part in that. Hotspot, which I haven't seen since it came out, but she was much more the heavy breathing sort of sex symbol in in that one. Must have been well, the same year as this. Maybe. It's, I mean, it's Hot no different than a couple current, years before. I mean, currently, uh, Sonequa Martin Green, she was a badass on Walking Dead. She's a uh, lead of Star Trek Discovery, but movie time, it's wife to LeBron James in Space <laughs> Jam. Well, yeah, and that's that's an obvious pattern. Congrats, you won. Um, Kathleen Quinn. I remember. Marge Helen Helenberger, who was a known character actress in a runway before CSI, but her one of her big post CSI movies is Kevin Costner's wife, who runs on a treadmill in Mr. Brooks. It's funny how you get when you get that. she like wife to Dennis Quaid in uh, some rom com too? Yeah, the I believe so. In good in good company, the Topher Grace thing. Yeah, Yeah. pulled that one. But before that, it, before CSI, it's well, it's like co-lead of species with Mike with with, her, with Virginia oh, yeah. Madsen's brother, Michael yeah. Madsen. Right, right. <laughs> uh, he got her back for Species too, too. Did she? No, Michael Madsen came. No, Michael Madsen came. I thought they both did. I don't remember. I, I thought they both did. I think it's just Michael Madsen. Maybe it is. Too. Hold on, I'm trying to think. Maybe it is both of them. I, yeah. I have to, rather than typing it, I'm going to do this connect the dots of clicking different names. Series, species two. Meanwhile, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're skipping over back. this. We're skipping. She's back in species okay. two. Yeah, it's more like because they get together in species, but then they're like a str- an estranged couple. It's a real Dewey Cox, Courtney. <laughs> right. <laughs> Or not Dewey Cox, no, David Arquette, Courtney Cox situation screen. I, I love the sets in this movie because of like, it oh, feels Man? like an, yeah, well, I mean, that's not the sets, but the location for the, it feels like a real college. It's a like, mix, it's not right? trying they, to be a yeah, fancy feel, university. This Canadian made this movie? No, no, no. They, well, I don't know if the sets were, but they, they yeah. it's Chicago. And Chicago. They did, they did, like they actually went to Cabrini Green, which we're going to get to, which is notorious for being you know a dangerous area or what have you but they actually got you know a level of authenticity there mixed with sound stages or what have you this is all new as far as i understand the the original barker stories is set in england and yeah so this this is neat to me like it's the clive barker story is called the forbidden and yeah it was set it was set in 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 england around and it was based around the british class system and for whatever reason bernard rose an englishman decided what if we like moved it to america to chicago and like the 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 urban areas around there and like dealt with the class going on in that day so like good good on you bernard rose i guess social ideas in mind for your movie Um, most effective part at least for me at the time the sort of making cabrini green this sort of legendarily scary place was the most effective element of this movie for me as i recall Mm -hmm. Well, it's a great touch, right? Because you already have an area that's, and again, we've seen this kind of explorative 
modern stuff as far as like how you already have something that's evil um i'm thinking of i don't know any number of like black directed horror films recently and then you like add something on top of that that's you know supernatural and yeah it just it's it fuels a metaphor pretty easily as far as what you're going after what i always got from this movie as a kid and you know nothing i've i've seen or read this way before that was that the overarching metaphor was that you know cabrini greens as a place was so disadvantaged and so terrible that it was more comfortable comforting to think that there was some supernatural boogeyman killing people mm-hmm. um and you know it's not a subtle picture in any way shape or form nor that it need to be it's candy man um, like it's a horror well, movie. It's, like it's 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 but it's also the kind of film and even more even as much so the sequels in that it's the kind of topicality and and social relevancy, blah, 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 that I would argue used to be far more part of the course when films were just movies that didn't cost a gajillion dollars and didn't have to appeal to every quadrant that True. weren't sort of all for one and one for all popcorn entertainments. Um, I mean, I, I, I did watch the sequels for not the first time, the first time in a while last summer, you know, back when we still thought the new Candyman was coming out in September. Ha, ha, ha. Um, <laughs> And there's stuff, especially in Day of the Dead, that wait, it's the third one. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a good movie, but it's very casual, offhand, conventional wisdom treatment of racist cops and how they affect the underclass. You know, by today's standards, we'll be getting you know, get a thousand thick pieces about it. Wow, how courageous, how brave, blah, 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 blah. And this is just some, you know, dime a dozen cheapo cashing horror sequel. But that kind of being aware of the world around you was was expected in any movie that took place in the you know, present tense. Yeah, the 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 third sequ- the second sequel, the third movie, I still haven't seen because by the time I was going to get to it, it stopped streaming easily for me. Um, but I, I have seen. Um, is it Farewell to the Flesh? That's yes, the, yeah, yeah, that's the second one. The, yes. second, the Bill Bill Condon's Candyman Two: Cold yeah. Farewell yeah. to the Flesh. Um, <laughs> the third and, one uh, stars Baywatch's Donna Dierico. Okay, uh, but that second one—I mean, I think it's a—it's a good movie. Like, it's not yeah, this, yeah, but yeah. It, it's a legit. Like, it's effective, and it does a lot more with the Candyman character. Like, it gives you his backstory and whatnot, and it—it it has ideas there, even if it's not like you know great. It's still like solid, and that's why you know the idea of refreshing this brand now with you know, let alone having Jordan Peele's name attached to it as a producer. That's in, that's inherently intriguing to me. It's like, look at where we are right now. Look at the kinds of movies that have been successful. Look at the movies Jordan Peele's been making that are successful. It's like, of course you want to do a Candyman these days, and you can try yeah. to reflect that on something. I, I'm curious what it's going in. You know, in a few days we'll be able to see it, but I'm curious what it's trying to evoke. The trailers give me some ideas, but it's certainly branching off from what like what this movie is specifically. I mean, like, because Cabrini Green was torn down and like ten years ago. Um, but I, I I am excited to see a movie that. You know, has this kind of urban legend thing going on with it, and wants to, and, you know, can still tackle social themes in that way. Yeah, for sure. And even even now, when there's still kind interest. of, you know, we're getting a lot more of those kinds of movies and whatnot. But yeah, it's well, usually when that happens um, in horror, when you get them through original pictures, it digs up the ghost of something that was that back then to give us a fresh take. Now that's what. Oh, I mean, it always. I mean, Scream dug it up, and here comes Halloween H two O. It's typically what'll happen uh, when these these things will come about. So you know, it's 
Inception makes $800 million. Let's make another Total Recall. Right. Um, Sometimes better than others. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, oh. So this at this point in the movie, by the way, we, we have both both um, uh, um, Helen and um, Cassie Lemon's character, Bernie, Bernadette. Uh, they've said Candyman into the mirror five times. That's not a good idea. <laughs> no. the, if you're gonna exp- if you're gonna research an urban legend, don't do the thing. <laughs> that's, that's not that's not the way to go. I mean, we could that's... we could build up something. Uh, Candyman versus Bloody Mary, right? If we someone could <laughs> do that, I know Urban Legend. The third one was Bloody Mary. So this is the first movie to deal with that at all that I can remember in terms of American horror to, to, to deal with the idea of urban legends at all. It was very interesting and mm-hmm. virgin territory at the time, as I recall. To like right. to actually like reference the fact that it's an urban legend, not just be like an adaptation of the urban legend. Yeah, right, right. I, yeah, yeah. We would hear these stories around the fire camp. At, not Candyman, but these things, and I yeah. was fascinated by that idea that these stories didn't travel by horror movie, really, and and, and that's very tantalizing about the first act of this movie. That it's well, yeah, it's it works as like a journalistic film, right, and not not unlike The Ring, for example, which I'm I'm in the minority on, but I do I, I like in, in concept. I like that it's that it's a movie that's ex, you know trying to taking a journalist and being like, let's explore this mysterious videotape or whatever. That's what this movie's doing. It's like yeah. let's... It's, got the, it's got the oh god, I I wouldn't go in there. If I were her vibe going on for the first 45 minutes, which is going into places that the viewer would, would never go. It makes her uh, appealing and, and it makes it very tense. There's something to be said, I guess, about the confidence of these two women going to Cabrini Green like this to, you know, do what they need to do. Well, she's like, I got my black friend, right? I'm going to be fine. <laughs> well, I do, I do wonder, because I know the movie has to be conscious of this also. Like, even in mm-hmm. the 90s, there's, there's this thing you know at this is the point where like it's 92 right so like the riots haven't happened yet but i mean obviously there's various levels of tension because that's just how history works mm-hmm. and you ha- and you know spike lee exists as a filmmaker who is open to commenting on things at this point uh and you ha- you have a movie like this directed by a white man featuring a you know a black urban legend character that's murdering people and you have a movie starring Virginia Madsen exploring this stuff like the, the, the movie can't be not conscious of the idea of like yeah what does this look like what is the what is the angle here mm-hmm. I, I would say the that film that's... is very I don't want to say careful that's too loaded of a term but it's, as you said it's very aware of its potential pitfalls mm-hmm. and I think it's very successful at avoiding them also, while noting that, you know, to a certain extent, a film like this, yes, it's universal. Yes, anyone can enjoy it, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, Black people don't need to be lectured about the horrors of racism and urban blight. So to a certain extent, you know, it's, it's, it works as a, you know, a gothic fairy tale lesson for white people. Yeah, it doesn't pander. Um, yeah, yeah. It doesn't. And, it's, and you know, it's. I would again, you know, I would say that it throws onto the table something that it doesn't fully have the ability to deal with because it's 1992, and no matter how bold your horror movie looks, it still has to be appealing to teenagers. But you don't really often see like a magisterial uh, black villain in in pursuit. In both terms. Uh, well, yeah, know. I mean, oh, we yeah. just we went through the whole 80s, and there was never a black slasher person. And then when you do get one here it's made with like a very conscientious and prestige quality elevated above yeah. what 
the whole genre had had. Well, he's also overcorrect for racism of the past, and you get these sort of magical Negro characters. You're overcorrecting for for mis racial racial misthought of the past. So you didn't really get this. You don't usually get this kind of complex black character in a movie. But I don't think that the movie confronts that image. It just gives it to us. I think the only thinking about it now, the only person you mentioned, Spike Lee, but I don't think Spike Lee would have been given the I think the only person that would have been given the funding to make this and, and it would turn out to be as thought provoking as it could potentially be as David Cronenberg or someone you know to handle these themes because it, it is stranded between being a, a, a it's stranded between and well the best thing about it is that it reminds me of pre-code early horror movies like the mummy and Dracula and Frankenstein and that it really does this dance with the sex and death thing those movies really they weren't they didn't have a horror movie didn't have a shape yet they didn't know what they were selling. So it was just basically, there are these dark romances and, you know, in the, in the Boris Karloff version of The Mummy is it, the idea of sort of love slash sex after death is so compelling in the movie. By the end, you're on Imhotep's side, sort of in, in the dark watching the movie in the theater. And that, that that's sort of here, but then it's also stranded. It's stranded between that and I think slasher movie where it's, there's also a lot of sex and death going on, but then a much more, teenage way of what else is there you go out and i mean even in that regard though like it's it, it even it's nothing necessarily wrong with that even in that regard it's more bookend with like the the more get the kids into the theaters kind of aspects where, right like, the, the majority of this movie is focused on being you know you have, can't, i just can't have wishing that it were a more uh, but those bookends the teen stuff is what where the urban legend comes from that she's studying so it makes sense to yeah i i appreciate what the bookends are doing because of how it applies to what our main characters are going through, but you mentioned, yeah, it's the uh, the idea of like how it ex- how how it confronts like the lead you know villain character. I mean, I'd I'd equate Candyman not to Jason Voorhees, but something like Freddy Krueger in the first Nightmare on Elm Street, who's not in it that much, right? And he doesn't have that much to offer beyond a level of personality or charisma. And that's what Tony Todd's doing in this movie. We don't learn much about Candyman here. Freddy Krueger's repulsive. Candyman is like an opera villain like he's, he's, he's like dracula he's yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's that's what he's, he's like he yeah he's and, yeah very exactly his whole thing is basically hypnotizing the person he's after and bringing them to him and making them submit uh and, compared you know, to just he's barely to in this picture yeah he's, there's not a oh. lot this by the way this this whole when she climbs through the thing and like it's emerging out of this graffiti art mouth <laughs> of the kid that's wonderful that's a wonderful <laughs> piece of imagery mm-hmm. that is great <laughs> it's really terrifying yeah really great like all of this stuff right here, I mean, we're getting a lot of imagery. We get this colorful candy that has razor blades in it. Meanwhile, Cassie Lemons is still in this like saw level bathroom, like back right. <laughs> I would argue it sets up something that it couldn't possibly deliver at this point. It's, the unknown here is so appealing that no, nothing they could have given us would be quite as appealing to me. Well, I, I mean, I do think the movie's, for one thing, that's a good scare. But the, I do think there's a level of patience that it offers, and the delivery is yes, it's letting your mind do a lot of the work for you, which is appropriate. But even then, Tony Todd is very compelling when he shows up in the middle of time. Mm-hmm. Well, well they, they smartly have the fake out guy yeah. before that. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, Tony Todd's barely in this film. Um, I mean, he shows up, I think, at the halfway point briefly. We got his narration. You know, we got yeah. to hear Tony Todd. He's also, you know, Tony Todd, the actor, is, is, is very, let's be honest, if he was a white guy, he would have been a major romantic lead. He has that tall, dark, yeah. and handsome quality to him. Liam Neeson. And, yes, actually, that's a wonderful comparison. Mm. Um, you know, he's a very classically romantic figure, 
both in terms of this role, I mean, obviously the, you know, the way he plays it, and in terms of just Tony Todd in his prime. It, um, it's not a wonder that he was cast in Night of the Living yeah. Dead because he very much reminds me of Dwayne. Um, yeah, sure. Dwayne, Dwayne, Dwayne Jones. Dwayne Jones. Yeah. Um, as far as the kind of like natural presence that they sort of bring in this kind of, you know, this, you know, this before this, wasn't it? That's before, that was a couple yeah. years before. Yeah. He was to me. And then, oh, it's the guy from the, which I think is a good picture. I like that. Savini it's a, really. it's a solid read. Oh yeah. Yeah. It does the you job. Know, I, I made this, I made this up as I go along. So bear with me on this, but I was thinking when you guys were talking, I wonder to what extent this film was conceived and or developed as, Boys in the Hood comes out in summer of 91. To a lot of very ignorant white people, it's their first realization of how problematic life is for people in the projects. And then, you know, that film becomes a huge Oscar-nominated smash hit, blah, blah, blah. And then the inception, oh, well, let's take that and make a horror film out of it. And to a certain extent, this is what you'd end up with. I mean, given that the story existed already, and I assume there was a production already, you know, in development taking place what have you like i I would i can understand an audience going to see this thinking of like oh yeah it's like we did this other thing and now we're seeing this other thing in terms of them making this movie i mean also you do the right thing is not set in the ghetto necessarily but that's also yeah it's hitting it's hitting you know very significant themes in 89 and being a success to the degree that it was boys in the hood is i that was the bigger that was a bigger, but that was more. That was more. Yeah. That was more of a mainstream movie at that. Yeah. Although, do the right things, Universal came out in the summer, so I don't know. Yeah, but um, um and again, that's me being very cynical. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see what you're saying. Obviously, Boys Hood also just Boys Hood also just launched a genre in itself, right? Where you have yeah, like, a lot of a lot of quote unquote hood um, movies at that point. Juice, Best Society, et cetera, et cetera, South Central, um, and then the one that spoofed them all that has a title so long you can't use it on Twitter. Don't be a menace to society <laughs> yeah. without drinking your drink. <laughs> that, uh, that movie is not my favorite, but I do <laughs> think Bernie Mac has an amazing point in that movie where he spoofs the cop that beats up Cuba Gooding in Boys in the Hood. He says, I hate black people. I hate my skin. I hate all, he, like Bernie Mac. He has this amazing monologue. It's just like the most over the top version of being a self hating black man. <laughs> Almost couldn't ever not be funny, Bernie Mac. Just yeah, funny that's that helps. <laughs> anyway, back to this movie. Um, Yancey, you also mentioned the idea of there being a black lead uh, villain character like this that we don't see often. Still don't. <laughs> that, nope. is, that is very, very much not a common thing whatsoever. It's, it's not like this broke open any doors in that regard either. Right. You can uh, you can name a good handful, I'm sure, but. It's been it's it's been it's been uh it's thir- almost thirty years since this movie. <laughs> it's tough to do on a social level. I mean, you know, yes, individual viewers. I mean, you know, I don't want to. You know, I would like to see that just because there's certain actors I would like to see play in that sandbox. Um, but I think this is you know, this is a movie where the character has to be black. You know, it's very much informed by by you know institutional racism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as this stodgy white man is about to explain to us um i like how 90s movies had a lot of like stodgy art people like that's like yes. like late 80s or like that seemed like a thing like beetlejuice is like the epitome of that <laughs> it's, it's far, oh, it's like man. the type of characters you have like they're not they're yuppies but they're like educated art yuppies post new wave sort of yeah, yeah. exactly and, and even something like criminal minds which ran for 15 years once a week 
very rarely had minority villains mm-hmm. unless they were, you know, stories about a specific community. Um, over, oh, an overcorrection that. Absolutely. I think it's still takes, well, you know, it's, it's, it's understandably perhaps considered not worth the hassle. But I think well, that, it also it also it is, speaks to the kinds of filmmakers that are allowed to keep directing movies, right? I mean, yeah, you, don't, yeah. you don't have enough uh, yeah. pe- people of color that are writing and directing these to begin with to be able to make the you know adjustments but, or what have you needed to not only uh, supply this kind of villain but write a compelling story for them to begin with. Otherwise, it's just you know making the black guy the bad guy for whatever reason, or making you know the Middle Eastern guy the terrorist or whatever. Yeah. Does this guy carry over to the Sam second Jackson, movie? Yes, he does. Okay, that's why I was, I was like, I can't. I yes, he dies in the prologue yeah. of the second the, film. He's the yeah. opening. Yeah, he's the uh, he's the true weary. Yeah. weary of. <laughs> like now, I'm like I'm trying to count like the number of black like villains on one hand, and it's like Lupita Nyong'o and us. It's not a horror movie, but yeah. it's as close as it gets. No, I mean, I mean, like post, like even just recently, as far as like this stuff goes. Are we just talking horror films? Well, yeah, that's that's also the point, okay, right? Yeah. You can, there's not, there's yeah, any yeah. number of like screen gem movies that have you know Idris Elba yeah. or somebody being like some kind uh, of crazy uh, villain. But. Idris Elba yeah. in Star Trek uh, Beyond, but they <laughs> made him white, so oh uh, yeah, and he's sympathetic oh. and has a reason. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, it was Can- Candyman is also by the end pretty sympathetic, Phantom of the Opera style. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I saw him in Pretty Little. Pretty dirty things beforehand, but my first dirty oh, pretty who things. Is that guy, yeah, sorry. <laughs> she would tell you for. Oh, so you're yeah. thinking, you're thinking Serenity, Serenity, which is where I first noticed him. And even then, I was like, "Oh, that's neat." They cast a black man as the comic book supervillain. Is that O five? Yes, late O five. Is Melinda and Melinda also O five? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, I think because I, I knew him from that, and I'm like, oh, now he's um, the villain in Serenity. Good for this guy because I. You know, his name's Chiwetel yeah, Ejiofor. I, 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 it kind of sticks. So I was yeah. like, all right, yeah. let me see what this and guy's dirty, up to. Things, I think it's also where I saw him. Yeah. That's a good movie. Dirty, pretty thing. Yeah. Good. Just, Freer, right? good Freer's joint. Yeah. yeah watching, movie. watching it. Like, this is a pretty a dominant, <laughs> dominant screen presence by Virginia Madsen in this movie. Yeah. Either they're, they know how to shoot her better than most people, but it's just, it's pretty commanding. I mean, she's good in the movie, but. She just is in almost every frame, almost it's every a, frame. But it, it, it yeah, it, it plays to the strength of what Candyman does too, as far as the allure that he has. Because, and for one thing, she was actually hypnotized for like scenes yeah. of this movie to like get the effect that they're going right. for here. I mean, and yeah, Bernard Bernard Rose, like he's doing the job as far as using close ups wisely, is and like mm-hmm. you know making sure she's the center of attention and that you want to follow her journey. Like, had she not been around for like ten years prior to this, and this was like a third fourth movie or something like she probably would have lifted off like from the, like this would have been a liftoff movie like oh you got that girl from candy man yeah i got the girl but she's already virginia madsen here so mm-hmm. i think people just kind of maybe knew what they were could get but even that i mean like you said like the nancy brothers are like the hot spot like er, like earlier roles she's She's playing more of like you know like them Fatal or like sex pot right. characters, right? As opposed to even like Dune, she's what the princess and the princess <laughs> I ruined, but she that's yeah. a camp, that's a glorified I know. Cameo, but in terms of yeah. like the kind of presence she's bringing to the things, it's not you know because of the you know strong dramatic choices that she's making necessarily, right? Because there's like in, there's like teen comedy stuff also in there. She was in a lot of that that stuff in the in the eighties. 
you know, that's Hollywood work. She, she's a beautiful blonde, so you get cast as, you know, it's the same as, you know, she, you get cast in these roles and, and, and you don't get a chance to, to, to break out. What you get is an admirable quality of Candyman because it's a movie that, yeah, it's a horror film at the same time. It's a movie about, you know, character actors that speak to each other if, with actual thoughts on things and want to delve into mysteries yeah. and have, you know, actual characters to get into. And granted, the disaster that Highlander 2 was probably overshadowed this Wolf. coming right after, but. You think anyone even noticed that she was in that movie? I mean, in terms I, of you know, I, people who, who I mean, care and otherwise, it's a high-profile failure. So, I mean, uh, it, it, and again, you might be right, but for me, that smells like sort of a Kate Blanchett and Robin Hood type thing. Yeah, it's like, yeah, she's in that, but does anyone even know that? I mean, I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't like Highlander, so my knowledge yeah. of the rest of really Highlander, which includes. One, but two, you know, three, Highlander four, two is a gigantic four other films. Yes, it was a gigantic failure. I yeah. had never seen the first like, Highlander. I'm aware of the legacy of Highlander 2. Yeah. Exactly. T- tell, so... tell, telling you anything about it beyond the fact that it's called The Quickening and that it sucks. I don't have any to worry you. I, I hate to say this, but I rewatched them recently and I think I like 2 a little bit better. Oof. No. no. I've watched every cut of 2 and I... Mm, no. I've never seen the theatrical cut. I've just watched whatever the... You can't find it. It's uh, you, It was yeah. only on VHS. Is the Mulcahy oh. cut available? The the intended version, the Renegade cut. That's the Renegade. There's a, there's, so, so there, the Renegade cut is the director's. That's the old version. Yeah, the there's the Renegade cut, there. and then they made another improvement upon the Renegade cut, which why, the Renegade cut's way better. But why is it called the Renegade cut? Because that's a selling like six score. Yeah, it was like, what they called on? it when it came on DVD. So it like had a cool I was word. So, well, I hadn't seen the first Highlander. I was dragged to see the second one in the theater. It was right around the time they started serving pizza at that theater chain. So I had pizza with me in Highlander 2. I hated the movie so much and was so distraught that I didn't eat pizza for a month. <laughs> I swear to God, as a 20-year-old. <laughs> but yes, the, 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 so when I saw the Renegade, like, my eyes popped out of my head. I a slightly oh. better version of this. And yes, the Renegade version is slightly better. It's Chris Lambert for me. I they actually, they actually, years later, got like Lambert and Virginia Madsen back to shoot more scenes for Highlander too. Good for, for them. Cut. They put yeah. a big scene in for some reason, like right when he comes back. It's yeah. strange. I'm not a fan of the franchise. I guess it's uh, this little boy is quite thing. good. Uh, yeah, this movie uh, in the realm of like little boy and horror movies, it's this and People Under the Stairs have some really good uh, choices as far as the actors go. Yeah, it's a bit more edgy version of, of of also from a white director of course but i think people on the stairs which has its own problem is a little more toothy in the end about the about the, the class stuff you know it, it's because craven ain't afraid to say something or yeah. tell a studio exact i'm saying this yeah paper house which i never saw but but it was very well liked at the time uh, it's like a childhood horror movie kind of yeah. thing yeah urban art rose yeah Rose, yeah, and then uh, yeah, I, I think uh, people on the stairs is great. Uh, we thought we had a whole special episode about that. Uh, I want to say maybe last year, two years ago, but I, I really that's one of my favorite Cravens in general. Uh, so. I underrated all that stuff because I was comparing him to John Carpenter in my head, but now I think I appreciate all those early Cravens, those pre scream Cravens, a lot more than I did back then oh i'm big on the <laughs> i'm big on a lot of the non-favorite craven movies as far as that goes 
There's always psychological content that's just fascinating in those movies. He's always messing around. Swamp Thing, mm-hmm. top five comic book movies of all time. <laughs> it certainly is interesting as you're going to get for a Swamp Thing. Well, again, thing. like I, you know, I'm I'm not huge on the first Nightmare, but I really like Shocker. <laughs> so I mean, it's Shocker. <laughs> Love the first Nightmare. It's a shocking thing to hear. <laughs> like that three movie universal run that that in serpent in the rainbow i think are well, that was that, well, those were universal but that was when that guy paid him and carpenter whatever they wanted and let him make whatever they wanted yeah and then he'd say here universal you just put this in the theater like well, well, well craven won that round as far as all three of those movies yeah. Were, what, 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 yeah serpent in the rainbow is is, is is i would say superior to the two carpenter i love they live in prince of darkness but yeah. man, serpent in the rainbow is great there's nothing like Super Rainbow. Like it's just yeah, yeah. It's really cool. Anyway, here's the fake Candyman. Yep. They say you're here for the Candyman, bitch. This bathroom looks terrible, Next. by the way. Here's this is a very poop. convincingly bad looking bathroom. Poop it. You know, there he is, Candyman. Yeah. Like who's writing on the wall? That's like, actually it, Tony Todd's costume in the third one. That's how cheap it got. Mm. <laughs> I'm no lie. No lie. No, I, mean, I don't think you're lying, and I know Tony Todd will probably tell you because he's not a fan of that third movie. <laughs> like he knows what he was doing there, and it wasn't too. Uh, uh, do much beyond make money. Just uh, pull the sleeve over the hook, Tony. Thanks. Okay. Now you're missing your hand. This, like, it's just, oof. Frightening. And now she's going to be unconscious in that bathroom. Who knows what kind of bacteria she's going to get all over. She's got that big eye. But like, it's like, man, this thing's real. Like, the makeup on her is really good with the eye. Yeah, they do a better job with the facial scars than they do with the... Um, Burned head scar later on in the movie. Here, look for the Candyman bitch. Next, you got to be really to knock someone out, but not kill them with a huge hook. Mm-hmm. You got to really know your shown strength when you hit them. I don't think it's from experience. I'm just thinking, you can kill somebody hitting them with a big hook like that is impressive since you're using a hook to hurt somebody and it's not to hook them. Right, <laughs> it's a choice. Yeah, but you're not killing them. You just want to knock them unconscious. Oh, that is a good, yeah, that is a good eye-beating look yeah. right there. Okay. You watch her get, like, lung cancer throughout this movie. It's great. It's certainly a distinctively 90s touch that the protagonists are allowed to smoke. And wear tweed. Inside. <laughs> The IBM keyboard or the typewriter. Sorry. I know we'll head back to Cabrini cream, but I, I mean, the use of it, like it's a, it's, it's effective because you, you, you get it. Like I like, it's, I like how it's a real location where you, you can understand what they're going for just by presenting it. Obviously mm-hmm. you have characters that are causing a, you know, causing trouble or whatnot, but just like the, the way it's shot, there's you know, it's using colder colors or what have you, where it's a lot warmer in these other scenes. Like it's it's certainly trying to evoke a vibe even before once again Candyman has emerged, which were what 40 there's minutes of this movie. A lot of helicopter shots over it too, which yeah. really gives mm-hmm. the movie a grander sense of scale and feels like it's much more expensive than it is. And then underneath it you have this or you know, wherever, as far as once he kind of digs further into it to find Candyman, there's this like gothic church. And it's just like, it's really neat. It's a really neat idea yeah. of how to like present this. You know, if you're not going to go to Transylvania to get to Dracula, what else do you do to like create a similar kind of vibe? You can yeah. put a giant gothic church underneath this horrible building. See, this kid knows better. He's not saying Candyman <laughs> in the mirror five times. <laughs> like, he's, 
He didn't have time for that. Meanwhile, she's trying to do a Ray Charles impression. Right. <laughs> so they're trying to elevate Candyman's stature by calling Dracula and Frankenstein's monster fakies. Like, they're just fiction. Candyman is real. I mean, what's yeah, the boy to think, pretty- right? Yeah, yeah, sure. he, put, that- he put some ice on it. Well, what's the boy to think? I was gonna say, as far right. as like he lives in this world where he has like maybe seen a VHS tape of Frankenstein. It's like, what's that gonna do to me? Meanwhile, if I go downstairs, I might get murdered. Like, I mean, it's <laughs> all because I said yes to some candy, maybe or whatnot. Like, It's domestic bliss that they got. They, they, you do, they do have a lot of helicopter shots. You're yeah. right, Brandon. There's a lot of overhead shots, specifically. And we're basically halfway through this film, and mm-hmm. basically nothing supernatural has actually transpired. It naturally happens. It's just as interesting, just as threatening yeah. without Candyman. It's and an it, engrossing it changes. real-world story. And then in this back half, it gets, I mean, much more uh, supernatural and graphic. Like the, the the eye is an introduction to the bloodshed you're going to see later. A lot of yeah. aftermath stuff, but still, it's it's groovy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it just I don't know. Like the way he felt, like it feels real. Like I've been here, or I I just know how it smells. I know how it is to the touch. I know what the air's like. It's really granted. I've been to Chicago plenty of times, but. Um, it just really captures a, a feel, an essence, uh, groundedness that it it almost feels effortless. From Bernard Rose, who has directed uh, a Candyman. <laughs> that's all. I... He did that Gary Oldman Beethoven movie. Yeah, yeah. Immortal oh, Beloved. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. That was Gary Oldman's attempt to be like, see, I can play a good guy every now and then. <laughs> I can call it Beethoven because <laughs> before of times. Yeah. <laughs> So they had to call it Immortal Beloved. Here we go. Now, this entrance for Tony Todd, like, what is the Candyman going to be? Like, presumably, you know, he has like a hook for a hand already. Mm-hmm. You're walking to a theater. You've maybe seen a clip or something. There's bees or whatnot. This guy is pimpalicious. Like, watching him walk in here, he's got the, mm-hmm. he's got the shoes. He's got this, he's got this banging coat. Just like, he's walking over here. He sounds like Tony Todd, looks like Tony Todd. Like the hook hand, yeah, that's a distraction. But man, this guy walks in and is like, he owns the room. Put him yeah. in a dance. <laughs> Put him <laughs> in a ball. I mean, he what, he followed this movie up with what, The Crow? I think that was his next. Uh, yeah. Yes. Big one? Yeah. And Big one, sure. Yeah. yeah. He was in The Rock a couple of years after that. I know he played just a regular news reporter on a few episodes of Homicide in season three. Which even then, I always liked seeing him as a you know not in a horror film, just playing a guy. Uh, I I just yeah, as an actor, I, like, I mean, this is the this is the one that you know I'm like, who is this guy? And they're like, oh, he was the guy in the Night of the Living Dead remake. Like I didn't put two and two together right away, and then I've just always loved when he pops up and things. Obviously, his other franchise character is Bloodworth in the Final Destination series. Needless to say, <laughs> typecasting or whatever, but this movie made him into a you know a genre icon. Right, he's in the hatchet, isn't he? Yeah, he's in the hatchet movies. He's in Final Destination movies. 
Uh, he's the only constant in the Final Destination movies. Um, I'm, I've met him before. He's a really cool guy. Had good conversation with him. And yeah, most uh, b- big tall black men in these movies are great. Ken Foree's great. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like they're, they're all, they're all right. real friendly. <laughs> I get it. There's another one where, again, you just put put so much focus on Virginia Madsen's eyes just to get this thing going. The constant B stuff is great too. I think it's a it's mm-hmm. it's it is a unique touch uh, for this kind of thing. Like, how do you identify these movies and separate them? The the bees, I think, is really you know it, it because of just like the way they swarm and the way it's using them and whatnot. It's it's threatening because they're bees. You think of bees, you think of getting stung, but it just has this weird like because you see all of them together it has this kind of effect. No, that doesn't look good. Yeah, the rest of this movie is basically Virginia Madsen just getting like tortured, <laughs> right? <laughs> <Yeah>. She <laughs> just doesn't understand what's going on around her. Well, it starts to mess with time, reality. Do not pick yeah, up the so knife. Cool. Do not. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like she shouldn't have like said those things in the mirror that she said not to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, there's a sense of is this happening, and then it's one of those movies where like nobody is going to believe you, but the audience does, and we get frustrated that no one believes you. Do we? This is a post here remake. I mean, up to up until a point, it's entirely likely that she's yeah. The yeah, you know, now like if this movie came out and you know Twitter had to say it'd be all you know debates about what actually happened or whatnot. But I do think movies it's what it's wise to you know it leaves it ambiguous about making a giant statement about it. Yeah, I think up until and I assume we've all yeah we've all seen this. You know, up until when her psychiatrist gets killed. I think you could make the case that you don't know what's going on for sure. Yeah. I mean, yes, you walked in this movie, you've seen the previews, maybe you read a review, you know it's not going to be in her head at the end. You know, there's going to be some of, some of this is going to be real. At some extent, it's going to be real. But I think up until maybe like for the first hour, it's possible that she's somehow culpable. I mean, even then, we're not necessarily in, even if she's being and you know uh pushed to 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 you know be be uh under his trance we don't know if Candyman's actually doing things or if she's the one that i mean yeah. it's not we we don't see who destroyed that dog or the baby like it's so sad to say this, is such, a, <laughs> this is such a raw and unpleasant moment yeah yeah um, again it's not normal horror movie material oh. it's gritty i mean and it's it's, it's not exploited it's not this it's not necessarily exploit exploitative. Um, yeah, a person that's just dealing with like consequences of seeing the things that are yeah. beyond their control at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, that's how movies have that interesting mercury running through them where she's an attractive woman and, and, and in a movie you sort of, oh, she'll take off her top. But the scene where she's doing it is a scene. Is, where, yeah, oh, it's gross. Yeah. Gross, and it's but you knows that you've been sort of hoping some party's been hoping that she'll take off her time. But in the scene where she does, it's 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 that's frustrated by the fact that it's so gross, you know. Yeah, it's a thoughtful thing to do, you know, as as a filmmaker. Also, nice to see a movie where set in you have a white woman in Capri Green threatening somebody, you know, threatening a black woman with a weapon, and the the white woman's actually arrested. That's yeah. Right, it's a nice change of pace and how things can go there. It was the nineties? 
<laughs> of course, she's also able to like go free. So, like, what do I know? Right. How justice works? Oh <laughs> yeah, I was probably yeah. It's probably what you know, you're saying. Is some kind of supernatural force hypnotized you and forced you to do things that you didn't want to do to some black woman? That's that's believable. <laughs> I, I get it. Sorry for wasting your time, ma'am. Huh. Speaking of like Tony Todd, they could pretty agree. With have you ever, has anybody ever seen the the movie Enemy Territory? No, I have not. So he starred. It's one of his earliest movies. It's from the the early eighties. Um, it's, uh, it's, it stars Ray Parker Jr. Oh. as an action hero. It's basically the raid um, back then, and Tony Todd plays the gang leader called the Count. Um, that's going after Ray Parker Jr. in this bill. It's pretty cool. It's pretty nifty if you can find it. Um, it, it it's available to watch other places because it's only been on VHS ever and barely on VHS ever. Is Ray Parker Jr. a cop? He's just a, he's like a dude. Uh, he's not a cop. Um, he's got this. Of course, they give him this little like nerdy white guy partner. They're no, I don't think they know each other. I think they just ran into each other in the building. But it's basically your structure of the raid. Um, but done then cheaply and stuff. But uh, Tony Todd, um, he's pretty fun in that movie, mm-hmm. and uh, he thinks you're cool if you ever bring it up with him. So if you ever yeah, talk to Tony Todd, up. bring it up because okay. he's like, no one ever talks to me about that movie. I see Stacey Dash is in that movie as well. Oh, is she? Apparently, I yeah. Forgot that. I like to forget so, she's in stuff. So she's so. probably playing somebody in her twenties before once again playing. A this high is when she was, this is back when she was forty, right? So, yeah. I was just wondering if he was a cop because I'm sure Buston would make him feel good. <laughs> so this got good reviews at the time. Yeah. Um, oh. Beyond the Cisco and Ebert bump, it got just generally good reviews overall. I believe it premiered at the, it was at the the uh, like the Midnight Madness part of of TIFF. Uh, at okay. the time which makes sense it's neat to think about like classic like movies like this that were like you know premieres at film festivals of this nature and it's like yeah <laughs> we had a great time and now it's like gone on to have a certain kind of legacy uh but yeah it's uh, successful of reviews and um not a huge box opposite but made money right i mean it got sequels well, it oh, yeah, they made million second on a nine million dollar budget okay. it was a modest good enough result Again, parlayed with you know good reviews and strong buzz, yada yada yada. Um, yeah. And the the second one, I think it came out in that last ditch effort of '95 before Scream would take over. Yes, yeah. And the third one was direct to video, right? Uh, yeah. Fair or not, you know, the second film was somewhat caught up in the O.J. Simpson discourse. You know, Gene Siskel, among other people, noted how awkward it was seeing this very tall black slasher guy who in his mind looked like OJ Simpson running around and, you know, hacking people to death. Um, again, that was, the, that was matter, totally the intent of the filmmaker. Oh, absolutely. And again, it's <laughs> just a matter of when you have something that's so rare in pop culture, you tend to find silly reasons compared to something else that has nothing to do with it. Like, you know, for example, I remember reading reviews of Disney's Brave that somehow compared to the girl the dragon tattoo. do. Huh? I mean, they're just alike, though. (laughs) They wake up on the same side of the bed. (laughs) Like, remember that scene where Merida 
<laughs> confronts her parole officer. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> what a what a thrill that was. Good times. And then she turns her mom into a bear. I uh, Steve I Larson had some weird chapters in those books. Let me tell you. <laughs> R.I.P. Um. Hmm. Xander Berkeley going for the vest look. That's nice, friends. Totally Xander. <laughs> it's a very Xander move. You're right. See, I can't like <laughs> black people would not be like just casually dealing with the idea that some kind of like hypnotizing murder man is like out there wanting to do something with them. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's like, "Yeah, I'll just take a bath. Like, let me let me walk this one off. <laughs> I'll be fine in the morning, I guess." I was just released from prison after being accused of hacksawing a child and a dog. But I, mean, <laughs> I, I just like you know order some Dominoes, just take a night off from everything. I'll be fine. <laughs> it's okay. Well. And at this point, it's almost a bigger deal that she's pretty much found out that her husband is sleeping with his students. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she treats it with more agency than the murder yeah. man that's after her. Yeah. <laughs> the murder man coated in bees and has one arm. <laughs> Par for the course, she says. As long as I'm in my fancy Chicago apartment up in the sky, nothing you get after me. <laughs> She's taking like a milk bath. It's She's a, about to take it's, a it's 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 the same bath. as um Heather Heather Langenkamp and uh uh Nightmare Elm Street. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm. It's a Budweiser. I know we're just like building to scares and stuff. So it's, it's, it's like I feel like we're in a we're in a we're in a pause before we can get <laughs> things because a lot of just tension building right now. It's like because we all know that there's a crazy murder man that's going after her. <laughs> oh, lots of breathe. I mean, it just had a huge moment and it established itself as a type of movie there in the first half. And I mean, as much as we justifiably talk about this film in terms of its broader social context. It's primarily a character piece. It's her story from beginning to end. Um, well, that's what you get it, when you have like horror author, you know, adapting horror authors. Even then, I mean, this is yeah. loosely based off the Clive Barker thing to begin with. But I mean, at the same time, you're dealing with, like I mentioned, you've, like in your saying too, Scott, like we're dealing with adults, right? And they, they, yeah. the, their lives aren't predicated on, you know, the various love triangles or whatnot with high school boyfriends. It's about like actual people having lives and jobs. <laughs> Well, that's one of the reasons I think, you know, not to get too far on the subject, why Nightmare on Elm Street 3 works so well. It's one of the few teen slasher films where the adults are, aren't are idiots and are sympathetic and intelligent and integral to the plot. And that's not a requirement, mind you, but it does add an extra oomph that I find quite compelling in the Dream Warriors. I was all excited this summer for like Scream Factory's, you know, announcements for what's going to come out in the fall. And sure, they probably got some good stuff, yada, yada. But I was like, well, we got Friday last year, Brandon. Clearly, yeah. we're going to get a Nightmare box set now, right? I can't wait for this. Nothing announced. I got to see Halloween's here. again. It's I gotta, the Halloween's again. Yeah, it's the Halloween's again on 4K. I got to sit here like a schmuck trying to like wanting myself to be finally won over by this franchise that I'm not the biggest on, except for New Nightmare. But now I gotta wait another year or something before I can finally get my hands on some overpriced box set that I'll watch right away <laughs> and then put away until one Halloween. Or I'm like, I guess I'll watch one of these again. Well, hopefully they you just go straight to 4K. Mine. 
I'm aware that I could easily watch these <laughs> in any capacity. <laughs> but the, the novelty of having an entire yes. box set of these movies with bonus discs and fancy transfers and wonderful box art that I can reverse the yeah. cover and nobody will see it except for me because it's in a box the whole time. I'm into that. <laughs> I'm waiting for that. <laughs> I just got the new Friday the 13th set, which is um, pretty much what, like, I don't know why Paramount's like, Screen Factory puts out this great set, which is still available. Why did you get it? Or did and, you get it sent to you? For review. And yeah. it had, I was it like, why did you buy it? Okay. It's their previous one, except the art is actually Jason from the movies rather than Roy from the fifth one. There it is. And, there we go. Um, That's a good one. <laughs> digital copies. Digital copies. Yeah, digital copies. Yeah. So I was in it for, the, for one through eight digital copies. So. That's a good one shot, too. That's really yeah. good. That's it's it's great how big the hand is like that could be easily comical, but it's fun that it's just like this giant hook that comes to the door or the mirror. I love the the very mute or the the white hallway stuff. Yeah, it's just kind of. Now, like this, like you know, I talk about the gothic church and all that. This stuff is effective too. Just like trying to present a normal life, like normal mm-hmm. like, normal interiors. And then you have to meld it with, you know, the boogeyman. Once again, we get this like other mm-hmm. horror slash supernatural horror icons between, you know, Chucky, Freddy, Pinhead, Jason, and Candyman. Ghostface. Oh, between them? Yeah, between them. And it was just the first one in a while. Well, I, th- I would say they're evenly spread out at that point, right? Because you get Michael, you get Freddy, yeah, you have you get, uh, the yeah. Wishmaster, you get Jason. <laughs> well, well, if you're saying between this and lock. you're saying because hey, right, Chucky was eighty-eight, Chucky so was eighty-eight. So, I mean, yeah. it's a pretty yeah. even spread through the from you know from the time moves slowly or the late seventies to the nineties. Yeah, you get Chucky, Pinhead, um, Candyman, um, and those are the ones getting sequel. I mean, Freddy and Jason kill the they get killed off here around this time freddy gets reinvented it's after that where you got to really think about because then yeah that's, that's just like ghost face oh, yeah, then you get a bunch of slasher films oh. where to a certain extent the horror icons are almost beside the point which you know that's not necessarily an insult it's just the films like leprechaun predicated leprechaun, on that leprechaun of course he shows up here what's his name uh, Hook, hook man, or, the other hook man from the uh, I, <laughs> I still know for the I still know verse. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> the fisherman. That's what the fisherman. Say. There we go. The fisherman, the fisherman, uh, um, just the, the specter of death from my destination. <laughs> uh, the hood and then the fencing mask from Urban Legend, the parka. The park, yeah, yeah the, the, park, the, uh, the park, uh, yeah. I like. I was like, we don't need that again. <laughs> the second one, and it's like, we'll just do a different thing. <laughs> I mean, do you blame him? <laughs> this boy, like, it's like she's she's out of it. <laughs> Smart sharks from Deep Blue Sea. Sharks in general become horror icons, it seems, in the 2010s and 2000s. The, the Amityville in the 90s with just uh, straight-to-video sequels where someone would like be at a garage. They'll be like, oh, it came from the Amityville house. Now our house is haunted. 
I guess Leatherface just kind of keeps going here and there. Like he keeps popping up every now and again. He's got some. He's got at least two movies every decade. Yeah, like, yeah he gets remade, rebooted all the time. Yeah, and it's Is there those, a reason for that other than just changing rights every ten seconds. Man, people, people just feel, people just feel it in the air. They're like, it's time, I mean, it's time to get another Leatherface. They're they're rarely ever hits. <laughs> I mean, the first one, the remake, and that might be it off the top of my head. Maybe part two was halfway deep. I mean, successful. Yeah. Um, well, the third one, he had a busted out release. I mean, yeah. It was supposed to come out in 89, and then... The MPAA just went to war on it. Not like the very smooth release of the fourth one. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> two theaters over one weekend, both in LA. Awesome. I, I realize I'm, you know, I'm overthinking it, but you You'd think eventually there'd be evidence that this woman was killed with a rusty hook and not a kitchen knife and that she has no defensive wounds or related blood splatter of any kind. They didn't call it Dexter Morgan to investigate Cabrini Green here, Scott. You can't just be putting these things together <laughs> right away, <laughs> expecting some kind of fantastic right. forensic knowledge on how these things work. This is intriguing. Look at all this scenery right here. Mm-hmm. This wonderful push in to this blood soaked wall. So Clive Barker, yeah, what's he what's he been doing at this point? He has Nightbreed has come out at this point. Uh, Nightbreed yes. was the previous one, yeah, and that was supposed to be this. He had big ideas for that, and then it got chopped up, and um, it wasn't a hit. Have any of you read Clive Barker? Like, is he a good yeah. writer? No, he's very good. He's very good. He's better than uh, film stuff. Uh, uh, one of my favorite books, uh, Thief of Always, is like a child gothic fairy tale that I read from his, and I, mm-hmm. I liked it a lot. Uh, and when I was in high school, for some reason, it got people's attention. I shared it with people, and they all it got made the rounds. People liked it. Um, he's Yeah, he's quite a good author. Uh, yeah, I'm not skeptical or what. I'm just curious because I just don't really know. But he, from what I can tell, he seems like a renaissance man because he's like, he does this, he directs. He mm-hmm. seems to occasionally act. He he's written plays. He's an artist. Seems like the guy like likes to keep busy. <laughs> no, totally. Um, and yeah, he was supposed to be the next Stephen King. Um, in but... that quote, Stephen King, you have the f- I have seen the future of horror, and his name <clears throat> is Clive Barker. Yeah, he got that label right off the bat, and then um, he became a filmmaker pretty was... quickly after mm-hmm. we'd heard of him. He made his own Hellraiser movie, which you know. And then he made uh, Nightbreed, right? And he made Raw Raw Head. He made he made, he made Raw two extras before the Hellraiser. That was the first bought, yeah, yeah. They were made scripts, but he had there was two Hell. I mean, he didn't direct it. But there was two Hellraisers by this point before Nightbreed, mm-hmm. and and the third one before Candyman. Uh, right. So like he's certainly a a name at this. Like I imagine Clive Bar well, like Clive Barker by, was associated with this movie. And by 1995, it's unofficially called Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's how. That's how I. And I, you know, I've I've still yet to have seen Lord of Illusions, but that's how I know the movie. Oh. I know it as oh. Clive Barker's Lord of Illusions. This is fun. You're gonna if get... I may ask, is there any reason you haven't seen it? Because I don't know. I, I've never got out of my way. Like I, oh, I'm curious. If it, it's not. Yeah, I'm not trying not to see it. It's a, and I can very easily remember. That's then that VHS day where you go into the video <laughs> store and you can see you know all these random movie covers and Word of right. is yeah. usually one of them where it's just like. Well, like I'll say it's what, like what, a detective movie. It's good. What Barker wasn't afraid to do and what he introduced into horror was a, a, a sort of a sense of erotica that hadn't been there before. Like he it kind of made his movies felt a little bit more adult because they weren't afraid 
to indulge in some sexual natures that others were just like teen fun stuff. His was a little more, I don't know. Right. Stephen King aren't sexy, right? Yeah. Well, even right. to a certain extent, this film, while being, you know, very aware of certain tropes and stereotypes, I mean, it certainly does play with certain birth of a nation tropes, shall we say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that, you know, I, I'm curious how the new one is going to even flirt with that considering what it seems to be or not the, the, the new one seems to have um, a lot of satire on its mind as far as art yeah. culture and stuff like i don't know if it will have time to like an, in, get, yeah. engage in that kind of area where like this one the second one the second one is because you learn about Candyman and yeah. like what he did which is you know just the, the same kind of thing you always hear black man gets too close and suddenly yeah. everybody hates him uh so it's um this one it is certainly playing in the same gothic you know, world as as, as Dracula. Yeah, it's, it's, it's seduction. That's the movie's yeah. a lot yeah. about mm-hmm. seduction yeah. as much as it is about horror. And the, the, the mummy. Yeah, the mummy. Yeah. yeah. And the um, creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't know. There are a lot of seduction things going on in these movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a big part of these. And only only the Invisible Man and Frankenstein seem to be like, eh, leave that for somebody else. Birth to these to the genre was the mix of of sex and of sex and death. And then when the, the code comes in, you can't do the sex part anymore. So well, it's funny when you look at the, at the whole, you have to bury it. So it's funny when you look at the horror was sort of perverted by that to being just about basically it turned into kids movies, right? That second wave of universal horror, like Son of Frankenstein and the Wolfman are already, they're already realizing the kids will go see these in matinees. But that first wave before the code are just these really complex, unsettling, grown up stories about love, sex, death. Well, and you get into Bride Frankenstein and Dracula's daughter, they yeah. delve into some very like surprisingly uh uh deeper topics than you'd expect from a film in the nineteen thirties. Yeah. The clampdown came pretty quickly after that in terms of anything suggesting necrophilia or whatever you want to say is suggested yeah. in your movie. You can even think about it. So by at this point you've you it's you know you're still dealing with an audience probably of even though it's an adult has adult themes, I think the, the the movie is still twisted a bit into trying to appeal to that teenage market, which I think is what limits it a little bit. Because what power did Bernard Rose have to to fight that? You know. So we're watching the unrated version of this movie. I believe this is like the big scene where that applies mm-hmm. the the murder of this therapist guy. Um, which is interesting because the R-rated version is pretty darn gory. Uh, it looks like a guy that, like, well, we couldn't get David Paymer. I was going to say yeah. the exact yeah. same thing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> David Paymer was busy. He, he's busy dealing, like, dealing with Mr. Saturday Night right now, so we can't get right. him for this movie. <laughs> he's, he's, got, he's on the Oscar track. Like, he's the Gallagher 2 of David Paymer. Like, <laughs> well, this guy plays a similar role in something else where he's, like, a, a, a jerk who doesn't believe the lead character, and he's, you know... And, and, he probably, if you saw this guy in an off-Broadway production at Glengarry Glen Ross, he's great. But in the movies, he's <laughs> I don't believe you, and I'm well, smoking well, that. You know? To be fair, why should he believe her? Especially for what we're about to see right now. Sure. I mean, you know, it's... it's, it's and again, it, I, I know I've said this a couple of times, but it, it's the last few times I've watched this, it really struck me that up until about two minutes from now, we don't know for sure that she's not going insane and murdering people um it's only really when he guts the therapist 
lets her free and flies out the window. Like, oh, okay, there's something going on. And yes, our you know, she's a protagonist who are implied to sympathize with her point of view and assume that she is victimized. But the film, right up until the end, I would argue, you know, wherever the opposite of reasonable doubt happens to be. Um, no, you're not wrong. I mean, again, yeah. the, the movie, it's, it's we're, and we're in such an early time where that's not the kind of thing where you need to like find ways to like work against that or whatnot. The movie's just being a movie, which yeah, exactly. is refreshing. So it's not like, it's not it's focused not on clues. Yeah, it's not dropping clues. It's not focused on dialogue that solely serves as ways to provide different routes of ways to think. It's just like, no, this is just how it is. And you just you know watch it and take it in as you do. <laughs> It's going to get really violent too. Like, this is like I, I believe this is like the most violent death of the movie, as far because you like you oh, see yeah. it for one thing is like the, everything else is like you said, Brandon, like aftermath for the most part, right? See, the, you can't just be saying this in the mirror, like <laughs> the amount of times that just like let me just keep doing this, like everything's gonna be everything's gonna be cool. Mm-hmm. You know, legally, she's now culpable. <laughs> oh yeah, in the court of law, I'd like to see that be exactly. <laughs> yeah. We I mean, have you on tape looking in the mirror, saying "Candyman, Candyman, 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 Candyman." Well, do you have any evidence <laughs> of any Candyman beyond what I said, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen? Let me introduce my surprise witness, the Candyman. I mean, the Warrens would believe her. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You always have to say. It's oh yeah, this is definitely. You could see the difference in the. Footage. Oh, I'm curious. I'll have to. Yeah. yeah this is. Yep. Yeah. Oh man, Scott. If only you could see this. Oh. <laughs> boy, he deserved this. This character, boy. Oh boy. And he licks his fingers. Oh. <laughs> oh, he, you shouldn't put his tongue in your ear. Oh man. Oh. <laughs> oh, hook doesn't go there. <laughs> So, but yeah, you could, yeah, there's definitely a color timing. It's yeah. Like, which I don't mind when they put these together. That's how cool Candyman is. He's like, I don't need to take a swan. I'll just, I'll just back up and the, I'll let myself just be carried out of the building. I'm fucking Candyman. Fucking the air respects me. I'll just fly how I want to. Who do you think would win Candyman <laughs> or Freddy Krueger if they were? I'm just kidding. Well, Candyman doesn't seem to need to be powered by anything. Where Freddy Krueger is like, if they're afraid of me, like, oh, get at me. Candyman is kind of like, Candyman, like, don't uh, talk about me. Like, you know, if I, I'm, I'll be doing my thing. If you want me to come, I'll come. Freddy Krueger is like, I need the energy of young children. Ha! Yeah, he's a flawed character, Freddy Krueger. Yeah, well, Candyman, uh, I don't know, he manipulates, he personally attacks, but Freddy controls a whole environment. Like, and also has this weird dichotomy where they have you know, their pluses and minuses. People sure, yeah. don't believe be in him. He has no power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why doesn't he just show up? <laughs> well, I mean, can it they granted they both like to toy with their victims, that's for sure. Yeah. But it does feel like you know, Candyman, the death part's more of a means to an end, but he's all about the seduction aspect and everything. Yeah. Freddie's just like, I'm just gonna keep fucking with you until it's disgusting, yeah. yeah like, <laughs> Freddie likes the dance, and yes, he well, and he you know he also needs a require. His requirement is you got to be asleep, and I'll pull you into my thing. Where Candyman is just like, I'll get at you in the car 
in the therapist's office, at the grocery store, you look into a, your, you know, your compact mirror and say, you're saying, say my name while you're looking at a cantaloupe. I'm going to come and get you. Like, he's, you know, he's going to come out. There. This movie attempts something. And maybe that's one of the things that doesn't work for me. It attempts something that's difficult, which is it's not just the Hitchcock wrong man thing where someone is being accused of what seems to be a murder that they, it's that she only of anyone in the movie is aware that there actually is a supernatural dimension to, to this world they're living in. It's a lot to put her, to be put through scene after scene of people doubting her for something we know is tr- is true. I, I think that kind of thing can, can get a little repetitive, or I'm not I sure. Mean, I, I suppose, and like you know, this next this next movie, which we haven't seen yet, you know, it seems to have more of an ensemble. I mean, obviously, Yaya Abdul Mateen is like the lead, but it seems to have like a lot of people involved. So I'll be curious how much that plays an effect as far as the awareness of Candyman. But yeah, I mean, I get it. You're like, you, you're stacking a lot on one character as opposed to something like Scream where you have an ensemble to deal with or whatnot. But I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it, because of the approach as far as she's willingly trying to investigate something and therefore she gets brought into this book. <laughs> Sandra Berkeley. Yeah. And a lot of times he plays like Helen. guy guy caught cheating with somebody. <laughs> That's the outfit. That's the guy got cheating with somebody outfit. <laughs> you robe. go to Spirit Halloween, they have that. They're like, a robe and got- a towel. It's like, man, this has been a great afternoon. Nothing bad's gonna happen today. <laughs> I went. I went as that a couple of Halloweens ago. <laughs> I recall I this. You did go. You did have this going. <laughs> Xander Berkeley, Candyman, nineteen ninety two. the painting scene yep yep the paint how many male teacher college teacher characters of this era were not sleeping with their students (laughs) (laughs) it's almost what professors did in movies well that's like that's Stellan Skarsgård's character in Good Will Hunting like it like it's such a cliche that he just introduces like you don't need to see a scene of that but the way he wears a scarf you just get it like like that's the that's just his thing Watch that movie. Watch that movie. Watch every Stalin Skarsgård scene in Goodwill Hunting again. Like the second he's introduced, he's like this hot. He's a professor at MIT. He has no business being this like hot shop professor who everyone like wraps around with like curiosity. Like, oh, are you going to solve the math equation? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> what? <laughs> People in Massachusetts, I think, have better things to do than concern themselves with Stalin Skarsgård's up to. But okay. <laughs> to answer your question, Yancy, I mean, I like. I don't know. It doesn't bother me. Like, I do. I I think the. Because the characters that she's immediately dealing with are disposed of. I mean, there's the the doubters are proven wrong quite frequently, and I, it doesn't feel repetitive to me. Mainly because there's just different kinds. Because you have different kinds of suspense between the wrong man stuff, the supernatural mm-hmm. stuff, the adult social commentary, the slashery elements. I mean, there's a lot of variety here that just makes it kind of weird for me. And I'd rather have weird than than standard. Well, also the the the, the doubting Thomas stuff doesn't really come into play until the third act. You know, Candyman pops up literally at the halfway point. There is one incident in which she's wrongly implicated, but she doesn't actually be, you know, get arrested until toward the end of the second act. So really, it's only the film's climax where you're dealing with this whole everyone thinks I did it, I know I didn't do it, and what am I going to do about it situation. But I see where Yancy, you're coming from, though, right? I mean, you have, a, like, we were just talking through a whole scene of her just kind of like, sitting with this thing that's happening and not really doing much about it it's it's because we're resting on just one character you yeah it's i can understand it being kind of a lot to have to put on to somebody as opposed to many bodies well it just makes her squirm for a long time and and we know it's not it's not 
she, she's, we know that she's right. It, it can, it's a tough thing to pull off effectively. Sure. I, I would shock it in that respect, as far as it maybe beyond what Rose is intending as a, you know, a white filmmaker, but you know, the basic premise of a white woman exploring an urban legend like this and getting as deep as she does, it becomes, you know, a movie about white guilt to an extent. Well, yeah, the scene where she gets the the eye thing has a, has a level of, mm-hmm. well, she shouldn't have gone down there, should she, Virginia Madsen? Mm-hmm. You know, level of white guilt, you know, graphically being presented in that scene in the aftermath. It just doesn't, I just don't think this movie follows through on all these interesting ideas. And I, I, I it doesn't even seem fair for me to say that because at the time, I don't think you really, re, unless you were really, really named filmmaker like Coppola or Cronenberg, I don't think you could. Uh, yeah, so. I mean, it, yeah, there's a, Despite how much I really like this movie, yeah, I can accept that there is a level of skill that Bernard Rose doesn't possess at the same level as some of the you know, other like, not, classic you know, filmmakers. Not, not that it's not skill, it's that he, in order for him to really investigate what the movie is implying, you would need to have been someone like Martin Scorsese or someone who's... Well, yeah, I mean, that, there's lack of a better word. Is the, I mean, that's what I'm using skill for. But I mean, in terms of like how to address, how to properly do that. Yeah, I mean... Well, there's a reason why you know certain names of directors where Bernard Rose is like, yeah, he's made a number of films and he's successful in his own right, but certainly not on this kind of esteemed level as others as far as how to explore things on a deep level that make you memorable. I also think it's a, a case to be made that the film's topicality slash morality slash politics were not intended to be, quote unquote, the A storyline. Right. That this is a horror film that happens to take place very deep inside a very specific socioeconomic situation, but it's it's, it's certainly it's extra... certainly conscious yeah. of it though. Like it, I mean, again, this I, movie this movie took place in Britain and he moved it here. Yeah, like I, it's a very conscious I mean, choice. I, 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 I guess I'm defending it, the idea that it it's very it's about these things and it gives these these things more than enough of time. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's a popcorn horror entertainment first. Yeah, yeah it's at a some studio. Point, movie. It does get yeah. a little yeah. I would say sidetracked in terms of actually telling its story. Yeah, fair, and it's a it's a studio movie, so I get that. Yeah, like it, it can't. And you again, know, it, I, it's, it's something I whine about a lot is that you know back when movies were just allowed to be that this kind of this quality of discourse, this quality of topicality. I want to say it'd be part of the course because even back in '92, this was a little like you know surprisingly nuanced. But again, you know, the next two Candyman films are just as political, if not more so. I mean, the second film, Warts and All, it gets hard into the whole, you know, sins of your, you know, white slave owner relative stuff. You, know, you want to talk white guilt. That's what Candyman 2 is about. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's the thing. I mean, regardless yeah. of the quality of these movies and the budgets they have and what an audience might be going to getting themselves involved in, you know, the directors still think, you know, even yeah. if it sounds pretentious on their part, there's like, yeah, we're making Candyman 3, but there's real depth to what I'm trying to explore here that we haven't previously <laughs> seen in the Candyman movies. Like, sure, it didn't come out that way, but I, I can, you know, it's not hard to imagine somebody on set thinking that they're really doing something special here. Sure, sure. And to speak to this movie more, like you mentioned this guy, like it's, you know, there's just not much like this. So I yeah. can, I can, I can forgive a movie that's, basically doing you know inventing an idea of how to be this kind of movie um if it's you know if it doesn't like if it doesn't quite follow you know if it's not entirely successful in how to approach every single topic that it introduces if it doesn't have the strength to really counter all those things i'm willing to forgive a movie like this for just being ambitious to begin with that is we're friends of the horror movie Mm -hmm. you know and the horror movie is is sort of a malformed genre that 
went through a lot of disrespect and still gets a lot of disrespect, especially through the mid-century. Critics just trash every horror movie that came around. And, and, and so when we come to a horror movie, a movie that's got enough grit to be memorable like this, gets vaunted among in, into the into the classic level because so many horror movies feel so compromised you know um and, and so many horror movies feel so sort of trashy that when a movie tries to have some ideas it, 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 it at least i was reminded of gosh you know if they hadn't had the code in, in the mid the, the, the Hayes code in the 30s horror might have developed to the point where it was as you know you, you wouldn't take to heart like a drama or a comedy that had just mm-hmm. successful sort of central image like this does. I think you would dispose of it because you would get more of those movies and they're more respected. But horror movies are such a moribund genre in so many people's minds that not quite getting there, but meaning well, this, you know, gives this movie great distinction, I think. And 25, 30 years later, it's still, I'm watching it again here, you know. But the this whole sequence where she goes to Candyman to, I guess, try to hook him to death, whatever. Um, <laughs> good plan. Um, that might be why I think Candyman wins over Freddy. In effect, just because Candyman can actually lure somebody to come to them. Nobody's going to Freddy. No one's like, it's like, where's he at? Let me let me go into Dream World and try to find him. Like, oh, that's going to work out for me. That's going to be easy. And it almost plays around with the, you know, a reversal of the you know the handsome prince that has to kiss the sleeping princess away. Oh yeah, yeah, very important, um, very for sure. And those were all real bees that they got stung a lot. Uh, Tony to- Tony Todd was paid a thousand dollars for each of the twenty three bee stings wow, he took no during this movie. Um, he was not thrilled by that. These are bees that are they're very young, so they could do like they were bred for this movie and they're very young, so they cannot fly and sting for the most part. But you know, not all of them, <laughs> but just imagine being Tony Todd, and being, that, no doubt. And <laughs> I believe there's some kind of like really special like trick they had to do to like be able to like get all these bees in his mouth <laughs> so he could do this scene. Thankfully for every you know black child that's murdered in this movie, we at least have a lot of work going towards protecting another one uh, to, <laughs> to round things out. Yeah, she's so dedicated; she never takes the name tag off. Yeah, yeah I don't want any bees on me either. <laughs> no, for the record, Aaron, I I, I do you know. Whatever nitpicks I have, I still think this movie works phenomenally well. Oh yeah, no, I, yeah I do yeah. think it's interesting, you know, looking at you know, what it 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 could be. For, I mean, you know, again, it's 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 the the message is not the you know it's it's this is not this was not a political movie. This was a genre picture that had politics in it, mm-hmm. so to speak, simplistically mm-hmm. speaking. Oh, yeah, like, like Brandon, you and I have talked a lot yeah. about like slashers over the years. Where I know you, you know you're a much bigger fan of Nancy. I think you, for that matter, are much bigger fan fans of slashers than I am. And it's not that I'm necessarily needing us, you know, meat on all my slashers. Uh, there's no pun there. Um, it's just <laughs> you know the the appeal of them for me is I just I fairly limited, I guess, as, as far yeah. as that goes. That's it. I like you know there's plenty I like. There's plenty of slashers I like, and I have a new appreciation over the years just because of all the talking we've done about the horror genre, what have you. But when I see something like this that just seems, you know, not only like is it satisfying on a you know visceral horror level, but just seems to have a lot underneath, you know, 
underneath the uh, un- underneath the underneath the the top layer. I I really appreciate that. Let alone dealing with the yeah. things that it's trying to deal with. There's just there's just enough there for me to be like, this is worlds more fascinating to me uh, than you know some of the other ones that may have a certain kind of legacy just because they came out first. Well, or, yeah, it's one yeah, that yeah. takes it, it takes it to a new direction. It makes mm-hmm. it fresh again. That's what's why this oh. one's going to stand out, and others that are just going through the motions or just mm-hmm. an interesting it, this... take on this or a nicely made version of this are not. I mean, this is the kind of picture that stands alongside, you know, quality, whatever, you know, something like the exorcist, the omen or Rosemary's baby, you know, where it's not a slasher picture. It's not a haunted house picture. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's, 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 it's a very, you know, it's, it's a distinctly, it's stick piece of mythology within the horror genre. Um, and that's one reason why it stood the test of time. And even then, when it came out in '92, it, it did stick out as a breath of fresh air. Um, well, yeah, because as we talked about, there's just not a lot going on, and there should be a yeah. that's certainly not like a mainstream level. Like, and, the, yeah. and and when it is, it's like you mentioned, it's the adult horror films or adult yeah. thrillers or adult suspense films or whatever word they want to use. That's not horror because it's such a bad word. And I think to a certain extent, yes, this film was a hit, relatively speaking. But I think commercially, there was a struggle of where. It was something that seemed too adult for teen slasher fans, but was still a gruesome, grotesque horror film that wasn't exactly taking the songs to the lamb slipping with the enemy crowd. Well, the idea is so potent, right? It's like, regardless of it being a black or white character, it's you say this word into the mirror five times and a guy with a hook's going to kill you. That could get you, that that gets butts into seats. Like, that's going to get you going. By the time people see this, I, I don't know what the word of mouth is like. Apparently, it was good enough, but I mean, yeah, you're you're getting something unique, that's for sure. Yeah. Before I forget to mention this, before Tony Todd was chosen for this role, Eddie Murphy was considered. Yeah, holy shit. Eddie he Murphy got, he was went considered. for Vampire in Brooklyn instead. Yeah. yeah. Eddie Murphy was he was but he was he was too short. They did they didn't that's think he older. Oh, that's why because he was too short. They didn't it was him. wasn't imposing enough. Could that's this movie have afforded Eddie, Eddie Murphy? Also, I, couldn't afford him. He didn't want to do it. I'm sure. I, I, yeah, also, I'm sure there's. I'm know sure. who Eddie Murphy is. I mean, I'm sure there's more to it. Experience, but but Eddie. Yeah, I mean, Eddie Murphy says Eddie Murphy but, walks in. Like, oh shit! Beyond the monetary but, aspect yeah. of it, which I'm sure informed a lot of the decision. Eddie Murphy is a film fan, and he's a big horror movie fan. So, like, I'm yeah. not surprised if, like, you know, however it works with studios and scripts or whatnot, came around his way. He's like, what's Candyman? And he read the you know basic ideas like this sounds intriguing. Let's look into this. And they couldn't pay him, and he didn't do it. Like that, that I imagine that's more along the lines of what happened. But I could see Eddie Murphy like looking at this at that time, ninety two, right? It's coming yeah. after a number of flops on boomerang. his hand. Yeah, <clears throat> and he's and yeah, Boomerang is like him trying to do something different. It's like yeah, let me do yeah. a horror movie. Let me be a horror villain. And he likes he likes to be that thing. He likes to be the guy that's doing something that normally the white right. guy does first. He wants to do that, right? So it's like let me be a black horror villain. There's no black Dracula. Well, there's black Dracula. There's black. There's, there's no black. There's no black Freddy Krueger. Mm-hmm. Let me try that. And then you know, budget gets slashed or whatever. Can't do it. Yeah, if you want to talk about what's less interesting, in this movie. I mean, this finale, while well filmed. I mean, there's a lot of in, you know for a fairly mid mm-hmm. you know low budget horror film. You got a lot of fire effects or whatnot. The idea of how you kill Candyman is like you just—I guess you just kind of stab him at the right easy. time. It's like, mm-hmm. all right, <laughs> good <Yeah>. job. <laughs> no, it's 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 obviously the 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 point is that she you know saves the baby and gives her life, yada yada yada. Okay. But it's still a pretty 
I would frankly argue, underwhelming climax. Yeah, I mean, you have this murder monster <laughs> that could do seemingly anything. You're just like, oh, you just, you know, stash him in this thing that he presumably built himself and stab him <laughs> with a flaming rod or whatever. And, yeah, that takes care of it. Well, poor Virginia Madison. Yeah, this look is uh, wonderful. <laughs> this is quite the look here. Kind of a bad makeup to end on a little bit. I mean, if you're emotionally there, which ideally you are, that's what matters, right? So, but yeah, I mean, a woman that has a full head of blonde hair putting on a bald cap with burn scars on it's only going to go so far. <laughs> It'll be like this. Well, that's the, the last of Candyman. It's just like the Grave of the Fireflies. <laughs> that's a jolting smash cut because yeah. yeah, they just killed off the protagonist. <laughs> Which again, you know, back then was frankly not par for the course. Uh, whether you think of this as a slasher film or as a prestige horror film or whatever, you know, it really wasn't. I would argue, and you guys might. A lot of thousand different examples, but for me, it was when we started seeing remakes and riffs on Asian horror films that I started seeing lots and lots of horror films that had genuinely unhappy endings. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, and that and that's so. I'm so mixed on how that can be because sometimes I, you know, you naturally want yeah. like a happy ending to some point, but also I, you know, I can admire like. The level of cynicism or nihilism going on in some of these movies. Ever, ever a happy ending in a John I mean, if, movie. If you're going to be grounded with this movie, there's no, there's no happy ending because yeah, it works here. Who's buying her story? Like you know, Carpenter is a good example because Carpenter. I mean, for one thing, a lot of his movies are like, well, some of his movies are like campfire tales, essentially. So it's like, yeah, yeah they should have some kind of twist or some kind of like beat in a Carpenter movie. Always, he likes I mean, it to still be out. And dangerous when yeah. you leave to go to your car in the parking even, lot. Even when they win, they lose, right? I mean, you like, yeah. look, at the, look, look at the thing, or look at even Escape from New York. It's like most everybody died, oh, yeah. and the president's an asshole, and Snake just walks away, and, like ruins right. any chance of peace. Dooms <laughs> humanity by destroying the tape. Yeah. It's such a, a misanthropic. I love and that. The, and then dooms it again in these in <laughs> Scott's Scott's favorite sequel, Escape from LA. <laughs> <laughs> The fog, Calvin's, yep. the Jace, Michael Myers isn't there. It's sitting there at the end. It mm. always ends on an uneasy beat. Mm-hmm. I love Prince, Prince of Darkness. It's pretty much yeah. the world ends. It seems, and the Antichrist takes over. <laughs> like, so, yeah. like, in the mouth of madness, everybody's fucked. <laughs> everybody's fucked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Memoirs of the Invisible Man leads to cops and Robertsons. Like, there's a lot of bad things that happen. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Even in Christine, the car is still. Mm-hmm. moving at the end um, and there are plenty of examples you're right where it's like either a I, you know, a happy ending would make more sense or at least something resembling a conclusion like I love Joyride but I hate that the story doesn't really end yeah I agree and I uh, agree it ends for the character I know what you're saying yes. Yeah, yeah it's, I don't need to defend Joyride it's fine yeah Rusty nail. <laughs> in the hotel, when he comes and kills the guy in the next room, is a masterful scene. In enjoy, enjoy ride. One of uh, J.J. Abrams' best scripts. Yeah, I, yeah. I'll, I'll give it that. <laughs> I mean that sincerely. I think it's terrific. 
That was a big oh. Paul Walker year. That was a Fast and Furious, a Joyride. I think one other thing. He's on very good in Joyride, playing a part that you should be, you should hate him more than you do. I mean, I don't want to read too much of this, but this this scene has always intrigued me. The idea that the you know that Helen was better because she cooked. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, that's how Xander Berkeley's mind works. <laughs> oh, I know. I, know. I, 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 I can buy, I can buy I, that easily. Yeah. I don't want to read too much into that from a, a, a filmmaking point of view. But again, it was just a clip they had of them happy from earlier. In absolutely. The movie. Absolutely. It was a, it's they, very you obviously know contrasted with, with her not wanting to cook. It was an editor's choice, not a in the script yeah. choice. Um, like, when does he start playing better people? <laughs> like, in 24? <laughs> like, well, in 24, he doesn't start out a good person. No, he doesn't. He, he grows into it. He grows into yeah. it and becomes a hero yeah. by the end of his arc. Yeah. <laughs> I would argue casting him in this movie is a, ba- is a bad move. On uh, It shows a lack of control on Rose's part because he's too... By that point, he was playing roles. He was too smug and evil. And putting him in this movie is just a little too much to, you know... I think it sort of rubs your face in it. Eh, um, I, for one thing, I, I don't I don't think there's enough parts for him at that point where it's just firmly established him as this kind of guy all the time. But also, I think the movie always, always forced in, and I'm sure it's no fault of his own, but always forced into the. There we go. They never say Candyman, Candyman, Candy. It's always Candyman. Because they're actually scared. <laughs> they don't want it. They're fast. Don't say it's slow. It gives the situation too much ominousness. It's not Beetlejuice. <laughs> Should be. But yeah, five. You gotta say it five times. You couldn't take forty-five seconds out of this movie. It's a long. It's a long word. You got candy man. You gotta say it five. That's a lot of things. Candy man. Candy man. Candy man. Candy man. Candy man. Huh? To the end. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Like that's a cool set. This like underground like yeah. church thing. Like, a, and plus with the score going too. Like this is mm-hmm. really really cool imagery of this. No, the, the and yeah, I know you mentioned this right at the beginning. The score really does a lot of work in terms of making this film yeah. feel grandiose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it helps not force things because of the yeah. you know, the nature of horror. But you have this kind of score here with Philip Glass. It's not, yeah, it's, all, right, it's, allows... it's it's never not fun to say Philip Glass did the score for Candyman. Right, <laughs> that's always entertaining to me. Um, and if I, if I'm not mistaken, is it wasn't that what happened with Blazing Saddles too, where the people, the guy that wrote the song, did realize it was a comedy? I wouldn't be surprised, but I mean, there's. <laughs> That's another. That and Spaceballs are both "quote unquote" spoofs that have terrific heroic scores. Yeah, no, like Milk, 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 maybe he didn't realize it was a comedy. I um, mean, I think it's more just Mel Brooks knows what he wants out of this yeah. thing, where he's like, he wants a level of respect, but like he can he can make the jokes very crass or what have you, but he still knows how to make a movie, and he still wants it to feel like a movie that he's making. Yes, I understand that for the source that he's. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like he like I like he got Lucas to give him permission to use sound effects and stuff. I mean, yeah. so it's like it, it's that you know, the, it's the difference that you have when you go to him or the Zuckers or whatnot versus the fucking like Friedberg and Seltzer movies where right. it's just like we just shot stuff and I guess they gave him money. <laughs> like bad. And even like Westerns in general, but like even when you're trying to spoof or make a comedy, it seems like there's too much like I don't know, like legacy that comes with making a western where you generally want to give it like a good production value good score 
I think about like one million ways to die in the West, which yeah. I didn't I did not like, but it's like it's a well made movie. Like I can't take that from it. Like he's really trying to like that's and I think it's problem. Two, five and I think I, yeah, I think it, I think it's problem is that he's too devoted to making a good movie that he forgets to like make it funnier. But I mean it's it it has yeah. great shots of the vistas and everything. It's like good on him. Like I guess the Woody Allen Western that never happened, um, I think. That's a, it's surprising. That, I mean, I assume he probably had plans at some point. It's surprising that he hasn't made a Western like at any, at any time. That's the same sort of the neurotic modern guy in the old West. He'd have to leave New York. I get, yeah, because if he made one, it would have been like, what, like early 80s if he was going to do a Western, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just never came to, came to fruition. Maybe I never really like asked for huge budgets, right? Like probably like Purple Rose of Cairo is probably the most expensive of the movies he made at that point. He'd, He'd have been given it though back then. If he, yeah, I guess, but he's too nervous to want to uh be like yeah you know he's already, he's already changing all of his movies and never really satisfied with them the idea of him being confident enough to do a western seems like a stretch <laughs> he was always in that pocket of his movies made back with with the costs you know yeah, he so. did do sci-fi though we got that sleeper's great it but, is uh, but it's for sci-fi it's still pretty low-fi as far as what he's going for. but it's really good i love oh, that yeah, it's great. i love sleepers his aesthetics great on that movie i love how much futurama seems inspired by sleepers specifically oh for like, sure as, yeah. as big as that as big as that show goes there's a lot of sleepers in that movie we're talking way much about what you right now the end of this tiny <laughs> <laughs> as one does conversation uh, what did anything in my notes here that I didn't talk about? It's, uh, Helen, I love you, but my hook in my hand, and I just, I don't know, is it, is it my compensating? Am I overcompensating for my, my hook? I, I don't know. Just hook me. I'll hook myself. Well, I mean, I, I don't feel like, Yancy, you suddenly like have a new appreciation for Candyman, but I like to think that you did enjoy watching the movie with us. We talked about it. And... Of course. It's one of these movies I don't quite know why it doesn't quite work for me, but I'm Always checking it out again every 10 years or so. Ba-da-bum, ba-da-bum, bum. Well, we have reached the end of Candyman. And so with that said, that is going to do it for this commentary track. You know, we'll return in, you know, James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> so I was waiting for you to finish that one off. Uh, yeah, Beast of the Flesh or whatever the second Candyman one Candyman will return Farewell, in but, yeah. Candyman. Well, let me ask you. I mean, I assume we all are. But yes, are you excited to see this new version of Candyman? I am because I think there's room for a serious improvement in a mm-hmm. less restrictive moment. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I can't wait. I mean, it's been pretty much my most anticipated movie for now two years. So I'm looking forward to finally <laughs> seeing this within like, oh, within a week. I'll be able to have seen Candy Bad finally. But um, that's going to be for another episode that we do on the show. But that's, and that's going to do it for this one. So let's go over some plugs here. Uh, Brandon, where, we, where can people find more of your work? Uh, Brandon Peter Show, the Brandon Peter Show.com. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram at Brand4KUHD. Wonderful episodes abound. Uh, just wrapped up the World Film Project's uh, first session of it, where we did three films from countries that aren't necessarily known for their cinematic output. And we got some really, ran into three really good movies there that I definitely re- recommend each one. Yancy, yeah, anything you want to plug? Hope Springs Eternal, but as of right now, this is my. Uh social media presence entirely is being promoted guest starring on these uh but i'm always prompted to want to start a blog or, or, or a podcast after participating these are so much fun well, i hope you do soon enough thank you sir scott mendelson where can people find more of you uh forbes.com googling some variation of scott mendelson the ticket booth in forbes my twitter handle is at scott mendelson and that's all the news that's fit to print 
when I search Scott Mendelson, I always write Scott Mendelson plus Zack Snyder to get the best responses. <laughs> Thanks, <clears throat> really. I mean that. <laughs> Uh, you can find me doing everything over at Wise the Blue, Weave Entertainment. I just wrote an article about Don't Breathe 2 for Variety. And I'm on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. This podcast is everywhere you can find podcasts, but search out now with Aaron name on iTunes, especially because you can also give us a rating and review, which will be wonderful because we like doing these commentary tracks. But we like even more having randomly submitted user reviews that we can read online every now and again. Um, yeah, that's going to do it for this commentary track. Uh, next month, uh, I've already told these guys, but because Cry Macho is coming out, I want to get us to do a Clint Eastwood movie. So stay tuned. We're going to have right. something with old squinty eyes. Uh, but yeah, that's going to do it. <laughs> Thank you again, Brandon, Scott, and Yancey for joining me for the Candyman commentary track. You are very welcome. Candyman, 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 Candyman. He can. And until next time, so long and goodbye. <laughs>